So John chapter 11, verse 14. So, if you haven't been able to guess, this is Faith's favorite day of the year. And this is my favorite day of the year. And this year, today, is actually... The day that we celebrate Easter actually is the day that Jesus got up. Um, our culture, Western culture, Easter is actually on the spring equinox, so it doesn't always line up with the Passover and the day that Jesus actually got up from the grave. This year it does. This year, today is the day, is the anniversary, is the official day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the day that he got up. This is the day where they found the empty tomb. This is the day where he appeared to Mary and to Martha and Peter and John. This is it. This is the day that all of our hope is founded in. And I love this day. I wake up every, every single morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Today's resurrection day. My Savior got up today. Such an awesome, awesome day. But I'm not going to be reading the gospel story of the resurrection of Jesus this morning. I'm not going to be, I may go there, but I'm not going to be focused on 1 Corinthians 15, which is Paul's account of the resurrection and the hope that we have in the resurrection. I'm going to be going to John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And there's a reason, there's a very prominent point that I want to make this morning. We're going to have to do a little bit of work to get there. I'm going to have to lay a really heavy foundation so that I can make this one point. So I hope that y'all bear with me through this introduction. Because the introduction is probably going to be a lot longer than the actual point. But that's okay because y'all love reading, right? <laughs> John chapter 11, verse 14. As we read, I'm just going to kind of stop every so often and um, expound a little bit on the verse. Verse 14, then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Pretty obvious statement. Um, Jesus wasn't there. Uh, Jesus was still, he had just recently been informed that Lazarus was sick and he chose to stay where he was at for two more days. And then he made a very interesting statement to his disciples a few verses prior. He said, this sickness is not unto death, but that God may be glorified thereby. So it's pretty interesting that you know, Jesus makes a statement, Lazarus is sleeping, and his disciples are like, oh, yeah, it's good that he's asleep. You know, he'll, he'll get better with rest. And then Jesus says, yeah, he's dead. <laughs> Pretty obvious this statement, maybe not as obvious if you're in a completely different town, but the statement, Lazarus is dead, is obvious in the physical that if you were in his presence, you would see that his body is without life. His body was dead. But the real prominence of this statement is that Lazarus wasn't just dead physically. Lazarus was dead spiritually. And Lazarus was dead soulfully. We are a three-part being, spirit, soul, and body. Lazarus was dead in all three parts. And without Jesus, we're dead in all three aspects of who we are. We have no life in our spirit, no life in our soul, and our body is decaying day by day. We are subject to the dominion of death without Jesus Christ. And that's why what Barrett was saying this morning was so prominent that we're no longer subject to death if we live in the spirit of Christ and the spirit of Christ lives in us. So Lazarus was dead and Jesus said, And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Pretty prominent words being spoken. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Man, we say some stupid things sometimes. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now, Bethany was nigh to Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. This is actually like 1.5 miles. Bethany means house of affliction. 
or house of poverty or house of sorrow. And Jerusalem means city of peace. And the point that I want to make is it's interesting how close the house of affliction is to the city of peace. It's interesting how close it is to where you could be sitting and everything's going well with your life. You could be rested. You could be in peace. You know, you could be blessed. You could have financial blessings coming your way. You know, your cabinets are full of food. You know, everything is going perfect. And then the very next day, everything falls apart and breaks at the seams and you are in the house of affliction. It's very interesting how often those two coincide. That in the natural realm, life could be a box of chocolates. And then the next moment... It could be a box of mold. It's just, it's just something important to note there that we never know what tomorrow's com- what's coming with tomorrow. We never know what tomorrow's going to bring. Whatever we're in today, tomorrow belongs to the Lord. And we could be in the greatest happiness of our life. And then the very next day we could lose a family member. Or the very next day we could realize a sickness. Or the very next day we could be in a lawsuit ready to lose everything. And we never, we never know. So it's important, even in this little rabbit trail that I'm going on here, it's important that we know that even when we're in the city of peace, when everything's right with the world, we glorify God. Mm-hmm. And when we're in the house of affliction and everything's wrong with the world, we glorify God. Yes. There's only two times, and I get this from Sean Kennedy, and so I'm sure at some point he'll listen to this audio file. There's only two times that you glorify God. There's only two times that you're thankful. When you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. Only two times. So we pray, we praise, we worship, we give thanks, we glorify God two times. When we feel like it, when we don't. When we're in the house of affliction and when we're in the city of peace. Either way, either day, we glorify God because He is sovereign. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she had heard that Jesus was coming, went and met Him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then Martha said unto Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it to thee. Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha, getting all theological, Martha saith unto him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Jesus said, I am the resurrection. I am the life. John 14, 6. We know that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Not I bring, not I have, not I send. I am. There's a very important doctrine that we have especially in the Alliance. And one thing that I love about them, when they talk about Jesus being our healer, a lot of people, when they preach the healing, they preach that it's a thing separate from Jesus. It's something that he gives. But Jesus is actually the healing. He is actually the life. When we pray for somebody to be healed, we pray for the power of Jesus and the presence of Jesus to be prominent over that affliction. We're expecting the person of Jesus to outshine the affliction that we're suffering. That's what we're believing for. That's what we're praying for. We're not praying for some metaphysical random, abstract source of power to overcome a sickness, we're actually praying for the presence of Jesus to outshine the sickness. So here, I am the resurrection, I am the life. Not at the last day there's this awesome resurrection coming, but there is a resurrection right here in front of you right now, and it's Jesus. She saith unto him, 
Yes, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The Master is come, and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews which were with her in the house and comforted her when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Interesting that she said the exact same thing Martha said. Man, we get some things stuck in our heads sometimes. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping with her, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. And Next verse, the greatest memory verse in the entire Bible. Jesus wept. So if you ever want to teach your children a memory verse so that they can get a prize in Sunday school, Jesus wept. You know, it's interesting because in the following verses, they're going to say, look how he loved him and, and all of that. And everybody has debated and they've tried to rationalize what exactly was causing Jesus to weep here. It could have been compassion on them and their suffering and their hurting. It could have been a lot of things. We know that it couldn't have been sadness that Lazarus was dead because Jesus is he's going to rise again. This sickness isn't unto death. My personal opinion, I think that Jesus wept right here because nobody really had faith. Nobody really had faith in the things that he was saying. Nobody really had faith when he said, Lazarus is going to rise again. My brother shall rise again. This sickness is not unto death. I am the resurrection and the life. Nobody had faith. Everybody was crying. Everybody was upset at what they could see. Nobody was looking at Jesus and trusting solely in him. They were looking at the circumstances. And I think so often going back to that house of affliction, house of peace, so long when we're in that house of affliction, we're looking at the house of affliction. We're looking at the sorrow. We're looking at the trouble. We're looking at the circumstances. We're looking at our pain. We're looking at how we feel. And we're looking at what we're doing or what we're capable of doing. The doctor said this. The bank says this. The circumstances say this. But we're not looking at what Jesus says. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the healing. I am the provision. I am, I am, I am, I am. I am that I am. I'm all that you need. So often we're looking at that and we're saying, yeah, I believe you, Jesus. But we're still crying and we're still moaning. We're still complaining. We're still murmuring. But yeah, I believe you, Jesus. I think Jesus is crying here because nobody really does. They're saying with their mouth that they do, but their heart's far from them. They're saying with their mouth that they do, but their faith isn't there. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? And this just goes back to labor, that same point. We have such an idea of what's going to bring God glory. And we so confuse it with what God thinks is going to bring God glory. The Jews at this time, like we talked about last Sunday, they were expecting Jesus to come and deliver them from the bondage of Rome. And they're like, This will glorify God. If you come in as a Messiah and you deliver us from the bondage of Rome. And these people here, they're saying, if he would have came and healed Lazarus, this would have glorified God. Could not this man have healed him? And so we're looking in our circumstances and we're like, well, God, if you'll have a random check come show up in my mailbox, that'll glorify God. Or if you'll heal this in my body, that'll glorify God. Or if 
You'll deliver me from this awful relationship. That'll glorify God. If you will, if you will. Could not this man, could not this God. And so, so often we're in that situation where like, wouldn't this glorify God? Wouldn't this bring God glory? God is all about His glory. He knows what's going to bring Him glory far better than we do because He's able to look at it from this perspective of eternity. And we're looking at it from our perspective. Yeah, if Jesus would have came and healed Lazarus, that would have brought Him glory for a couple days. But if He comes and He raises Lazarus from the dead and shows that death has no dominion, death has no power, how long does that bring God glory? We're still reading about it. We're still studying it. We're still thanking God that He has the ability over death itself. Jesus therefore again groaning in Himself cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, this is my favorite verse, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Lord, we ain't going to open that grave. He stinks. He's rotten. <laughs> oh, goodness. You know, it's, it's funny, and we, we say this verse and we read it and we kind of chuckle to ourselves like, do you not think that the Lord knows that he stinks? <laughs> but there's a real powerful, powerful message behind this verse. We don't want to do things that are the will of God if it's an inconvenience to us. God puts it in your heart and you feel that, that leading of the Spirit to go pray for somebody. Lord, what if they don't want me to? What if they're going to reject me? Lord, that'll, that'll shame your name, won't it? Or if you lay hands because you want somebody to be healed and they're not healed. Well, Lord, I'm not going to do that again because, you know, that made you look bad. You know, you want to speak into somebody's situation, into somebody's pain, and their situation gets worse and their pain gets deeper. You're like, well, Lord, I'm not going to do that again. Or, you know, Lord, I really don't want that person to come into the church. They're, they, you know, they, they need a lot of help, you know. So then we start getting picky and choosing about who we want to witness the gospel to and who we want to preach to and who we want to help. And then we get picky about when we want to pray and when we don't and when we want to lay hands on for somebody to be healed and when we don't. And then we say, well, Lord, that stinks. <laughs> Lord, I don't want to pray for them. That stinks. Lord, I prayed for them to get healed, but I'm not going to do it again because they didn't. So that stinks. That's, what, that's essentially what she's saying here. Lord, man, if I open that tomb, then the thing that everybody's going to remember about my brother is how bad he stunk when we open that tomb. So then we start looking at our circumstances again. And then we start looking at the house of affliction. And we're like, wow, the house of affliction smells bad. Does that make sense? Is, is that, is that, am I laboring that point effectively that we're sitting there and we're looking at the house of affliction and we're like, wow, this situation stinks. Or like in the King James Version, this situation stinketh. <laughs> but you know what? The Bible says something very clear about Jesus and about His presence. It identifies it as a sweet fragrance, as a sweet perfume. And I think back and there's a testimony of a, of a minister and he was a minister of a kind of a highfalutin church. Is that something you say in Mississippi? We say that in Tennessee. Highfalutin. It was a very prominent and social standing church. You had the businessmen and the wealthy and, you know, it was the first self-righteous church of Main Street, I guess. I don't know what the name of the church was. 
But anyway, you know, he preached a very eloquent sermon and was very, very skilled in Greek and Hebrew and very theological. And, uh, you know, his heart started burning for God. And one morning in the middle of this huge church, I, I say huge, it was probably a three, four hundred member church, but everybody in there was wealthy and they wore suits to church and had their nice ties and the ladies had beautiful dresses. This man walks in and he has a torn up coat and he probably hasn't had a dime to his name in well over a year. And he walks up to the front of the church and sits on the front row and listens to the message and the preacher. And you can tell everybody, nobody sits within three seats of him and everybody's uncomfortable. This is a true story, by the way. Um, and after church, the man walks up and wants to shake the pastor's hand. And the pastor said that this man smelled so terrible. He smelled like urine and everything else. And the pastor was just standing there. And then all of a sudden, and this is the way the pastor recounts it. He doesn't say he, you know, he had a very, very conservative background. He doesn't say that the heavens open and that there's a light shining. He just says all of a sudden he smelled the best smelling fragrance he'd ever smelled in his life. And he just felt in his heart, this is the type of people that God came for. This is the lost. Those that are well don't need a physician, but those that are hurting, those that are without, those that are broken, those that are sick, those that are poverty-stricken, those that are dying, they are the ones that need God. They're the ones that need Jesus. You know, the church of Laodicea, they were rich and increased with goods and felt like they had need of nothing, but they were the ones that were blind and naked and poverty-stricken before God. And so often... I don't know about in this community, I haven't been here long enough, but so often we get so focused on ourselves and what we're going to do and how we're going to change that we forget about the people that God sent us to minister to. So whether they stink, whether the situation stinks, whether we stink and we've nose blind to our own smell, regardless, we do it because it's what God says is going to bring Him glory, not what we think is going to bring God glory. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe, that thou wouldst see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hast always heard me, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. So he's laboring the point that the people around him didn't have faith. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. It's interesting, he specifies Lazarus, come forth. An old theologian named Campbell Morgan uh, jokingly writes that if he would have said come forth, the entire graveyard would have came forth. So he had to specify Lazarus, come forth. But he said it with a loud voice. He didn't say it doubting. He didn't say it some 10-hour long prayer beseeching the God of the heavens and the earth and the God of the living and the dead who quickeneth the living and the dead to raise it. He just said, Lazarus, come forth. You know, he said a prayer <laughs> proclaiming a declaration and he said it in faith. He didn't stand up here and have 50 people come and pray for 30 minutes. He said one simple prayer it was three words, Lazarus, come forth. Sometimes I think that we're so concerned about how our prayers sound that we forget what we're praying for. We labor in eloquent prayer, and we're eloquent and ineffective. Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto him, Loose him and let him go. 
A lot of people that come to the Lord, a lot of people that are resurrected from their dead spiritual state come, and they've got so much bondage from past religions that have them tied and bound, or there's so much bondage from their sin. You know, we expect somebody, as soon as they say, Lord, I accept you as my Lord and Savior, we expect them to be looking like Billy Graham, and it's just not going to happen. And I say Billy Graham because he's well-known and prominent, and he dressed nice, and he had the church rhetoric. That's the point that I'm getting across. We expect somebody, as soon as they get saved, to speak right, talk right, walk right, look right, dress right. That's not how it happens. Jesus said, loose them and let them go. When somebody comes to the Lord, somebody gets saved, even if somebody's been saved and they just have not been taught and they just haven't had that conviction on their life in that particular area, we have to come together and help one another get those grave clothes off of us, get the remembrance of the things that were dead in our life and get those off. We have to help each other. We have to untie those burdens. We have to loose those burdens. We have to clean each other up. We're not going to do it by ourselves. You're not going to get saved by yourself, clean yourself up, and look like a prominent man or woman of God. You're just not. This thing is not designed to be one person by themselves. It's designed to be a body and to be unified together, struggling and striving for a purpose with God helping us overcome the obstacles. To he that overcometh will be able to take part in the tree of life. To he that overcometh. It's a struggle. It's a fight. And I'm not going to ever lie to somebody and say that Christianity is easy. Christianity in its truest form is the most difficult thing you'll ever do. But it's also the most joyous experience you'll ever have. Loose him and let him go. So if somebody in this church body ever has an issue, health, sin, sickness, religion, legalism, easy believism, it doesn't matter. We'll work those things out. But we do it in love, with grace, with patience. And we loose each other. Clean each other up so that we together can stand as a unified body in Christ. We together can stand as believers. The last verse of this passage, is, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on Him. And that's truly what that whole purpose was about, about Jesus tarrying two extra days so that Lazarus had been dead four days when he got there. And he made the statement, Thy sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. The whole purpose of that was to glorify Jesus in the eyes of all the people and before the face of God, that Jesus had the power and the dominion over death. Now, that was the introduction. I told you we were going to have to lay a heavy foundation. And the introduction was for this point. Revelation 1.5 makes a statement that Jesus is the first begotten from the dead. You don't have to turn there, just referencing that statement. It says that Jesus is the first begotten from the dead. But here, the story that we read was the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Before Jesus was ever crucified, before He ever rose, you have a story of somebody being raised from the dead. Now, depending on who you ask and what theologian, they give many different accounts of how many people were raised from the dead. You have the 500 at the, when Jesus was crucified that came from the dead. And they went out and witnessed that story. I believe it's in Matthew. I didn't write down the exact verse. You also have several individuals throughout the Old Testament. Elijah raised a boy from the dead in 1 Kings chapter 17. Elisha raises a boy from the dead in 2 Kings chapter 4. Elisha's bones, they go to bury a man in the same grave as Elisha, and they throw the man in. And when the, man, the dead man touches Elisha's bones, he's resurrected. 
Christ raises a boy in Luke 7. Christ raises Lazarus in the Gospel of John that we just read. Paul raises a boy in Acts 20. And Peter raises a lady named Tabitha in Acts 9. And the reason that I wrote all of these down and referenced these, and some theologians even say that Jonah was dead when he was swallowed by the whale, and that's why he's a depiction of Jesus. I don't know if I believe that. Some people say that when Paul was stoned, that I had thrown outside the city, that he was raised from the dead. Whether or not you believe that, there's at least 500 some odd people raised from the dead in Scripture, not counting Christ. So why is it that Christ is referenced as the first begotten of the dead? Why is he referenced? What's different about his resurrection? And this is the point that I want to labor. There's three points. And the first point is that Christ, being God, got up on his own. And nobody came and laid hands on Christ. Christ was resurrected in the power of the Spirit. But he made the statement. He said, no man taketh my life from me but I lay it down of my own accord that I might pick it up again. It was not possible that the grave should hold him and sin had no claim on him. And what I mean by that is that death comes by sin. Without sin, death is no take on you. For the wages of sin is death. Christ never sinned. So because Christ never sinned, death had no claim on him. And I labor the point, and it's a philosophical point, but I like philosophy, so... The point is is that Jesus Christ, if He would not have laid His life down and given His life over to be taken by men, that Jesus Christ never would have died. And the reason that I preach that point and I stress that is because it adds more take on who He is and the fact that He laid His life down. Because He never sinned, no sickness had claim on Him, no curse had claim on Him. So that Jesus Christ, He wasn't, didn't have original sin because He wasn't begotten by a man. By, he wasn't Joseph's seed, He was Jehovah's seed. So Christ got himself up by the power of God. The second point is that when he was raised from the dead, corruption put on incorruption. He changed in the fact that he has a body that never dies, an incorruptible body. And the third point is that his resurrection, according to Romans 1-4, declared him to be the Son of God. The reason that his resurrection is different from everyone else is because his resurrection in that moment was final. Lazarus, after he was raised, lived a life, sinned again, and died. The boy that Elisha and Elijah raised, the man that was raised by Elijah's bones, the boy that Paul raised, Tabitha, the 500, all of these individuals lived, sinned, fell short, and every single one of them died. Every single one of them was subject to the curse. Every single one of them died. Jesus Christ, when He was raised from the dead, He was incorruptible so that He never died. Does that make sense? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is permanent. It's everlasting. It's ever-living. He never died. Behold, I am He that was dead and is alive. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Does, it, does that make sense? Am I, am I laboring this point effectively? So I would just want to read a couple verses, and I think that we'll, we'll wrap it up. So in conclusion, I will go to 1 Corinthians 15, because I think Barrett would be disappointed if I did. 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll, we'll look at just a couple verses, and I'm not going to take long. Verse 14, If Christ be not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. 
verse 17, If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and you are yet in your sins. The point there being that if there is no resurrection, then it doesn't matter. If there is no resurrection, then we have no hope. In this life, we are of men most miserable. If there's no resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're no different than Islam. We're no different than any other religion in the world. We have a set of moral values and that's it. We put our faith in a philosopher and that's it. But if Christ is risen from the dead, then we have the secret. We have the hope. We have the promise of life everlasting. And we know that in Him, we can do exactly what He said. Live and never die. You'll put off your body, but that's not death. That's you shedding an earthly tabernacle. That's you putting off corruption and putting on incorruption. Uh, the next verse I want to look at is just going down to verse 42. Um, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man Adam was made a living soul, the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. How be it? That was first, which isn't spiritual, but that which is natural. Afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. It's just, it's just such an easy point. And I just want to understand that there's something in Christ that you have that no one else has. And I think it should be something that should just spark such an intense passion of joy inside of us that we should understand that in Christ we have life. And I don't even know if we fully understand what life is. The thief cometh to steal, kill, and destroy, but I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. We have this promise of life in Christ that death has no dominion on. Barrett said that we're free from the curse. That's because He became a curse because He hung on that tree. He became that curse. He stripped death and its power away. There's a popular song and it talks about death being laid in its grave. Death has been put defeated. It's been laid in its grave. You can almost make the statement death has been dead. Death is dead. And in you, that, that statement is true. I think that we'll I think that we'll kind of stop there in the sense that you wanna play something? When we started this morning, I don't wanna just continue on the same vein and just reiterate the same point a thousand times over. But I feel like today of all days the resurrection of Jesus Christ needs to be reiterated again and again and again because I think sometimes so often we don't realize what we have in this resurrection. Sometimes in the life of Jesus Christ we don't realize what truly is there and is available for us. We don't realize and we say that we do but how many of us right now know for 100% certainty without a shadow of a doubt without a little variable aspect of unbelief that if we died right now the next sight we would see would be glory and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords saying, enter in my good and faithful servant. How many of us? <laughs> Seriously, just ask yourself that question. If you died right now and you said, it's the end, you're done. 
the next sight you see is Jesus Christ in glory. I mean, it's 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 a hard question because some days you may be like, yeah, 100%, I know. And then some days you may be like, oh goodness. And then you go back, well, am I living a good life? And you go right back to that works ethic. Like, am I, am I working effectively? Am I living out this salvation correctly? And we get caught up in that. Well, and the truth of the matter is, is that works don't do it. Works don't cut it. I'm a, I'm a man of holiness. I love preaching holiness and I stress righteous living. The truth is that don't do it either. The truth is there's only one thing that does do it, one thing that can do it, and that's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him being risen from the dead. That's surrendering your heart to Him as Lord and Savior. That's giving everything that you are to Him. I mean, making Jesus Christ Lord, that's, that's a big, big statement. Because that means that you don't make decisions in of yourself anymore. That means that you don't live your life according to you anymore. It's Him that lives in you, and He lives His life through you. Today we preach the resurrection of Jesus. And I chose to go and preach from the perspective of Lazarus because I wanted to draw a sharp contrast between even if you die and the doctors resurrect you, that's not resurrection. That's That's just a continuation. That's an extension, if you will. The only resurrection is His resurrection. The only resurrection is the resurrected life of Jesus. And we, we preach so often, and I'm going to say something, and I think that it may have the ability to, uh, to confuse people. So please don't misunderstand what I'm going to say. But did you know that the death and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ did not save you? It didn't. His resurrected life saved you. The death and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ reconciles you to God. It paid the price. Paid your debt. Said you're all clear. But if He wouldn't have got up, you're all clear. But you still don't have life with God. You still don't have access to the throne. You still don't have that power and that access to resurrected life. So this morning, as she plays softly, I probably haven't done an effective job laboring the point that I want to labor. So, if you'll forgive me for my shortcomings, and you'll realize that the point that I'm trying to make is that Jesus is the only point, I just ask that you would close your eyes for a moment. And I don't do this. I don't know why the past two weeks I've said close your eyes, close your eyes, close your eyes, because faith knows I've never done that. But I just want you to just take a moment to just isolate yourself. If you don't want to close your eyes, don't. But just take a moment and just isolate yourself and put your focus solely on God. And just ask yourself that question. Do I really know you? Just like Faith asked when she was young. I think she was even, I think she was 13 when she asked that question. God, do I know you? Am I going to make it home? And I'm not going to scare you into the kingdom saying you could go outside and get in a car wreck. Because people that are usually scared in the kingdom can be scared out of it just as easy. I want you to encounter Jesus. That's my goal. John Wesley said, I went everywhere giving men Jesus, offering them Jesus. The whole time I'm here, that's what you're going to hear me do every Sunday is offer you Jesus. Offer you Jesus for the first time. Offer you Jesus on a deeper level. Offer you Jesus and a re-envision and a revitalization of a relationship that you already have. I'm going to offer Jesus. I'm going to offer Jesus. I'm going to offer Jesus because that's all I've got to offer. I don't have anything else. I'm not the smartest, so I don't have wisdom. 
I'm not the most talented speaker, as you can already tell, but I love Jesus, and I know Jesus, and I know Jesus loves you, and His desire is for you. That's why He came, that's why He died, and that's why He rose again today, so that He could have a relationship with you. Ask yourself, do I know you? Do I know you, God? Am I really in the fold? Am I really in relationship with you? Because if I'm not, that needs to change today. That needs to change right now, this moment. Today is the day of salvation. Today that can be said even more so than any other day because today is the day where we celebrate the very foundation of salvation. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And today we celebrate that. And today I offer you that. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise or be raised with him. Lord, I just want to take a moment and I just want to thank you. Lord, I want to thank you for everything that you are. Lord, everything that you are. God, I'm not the best speaker. But Lord, I would rather be effective than eloquent. Lord, I'd rather preach a powerful word than be popular with people. Lord, I'd rather hold your truth as high as I could. And Lord, if it means that I am invisible, that's perfectly fine. I don't want to be known. I don't want to be seen. I want you to be known. And Lord, this morning, most of all, I want you and your presence to be felt and seen by everybody here. Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that doesn't have a part in that resurrected life, Lord, I want that to be changed today. God, I want them to experience salvation for the first time. I want them to come into the fold. I want them to come to know you, Jesus. Lord, I want them to come to know you. Lord, I just pray over everyone here and I pray that they're blessed today. Lord, I pray that they experience you and your presence as they go about and they do their things and their family events and their dinners and if they do Easter egg hunts or anything, I pray safety and provision and blessing on their lives. Lord, I pray that this week, that each and every single day, they have a fresh revelation of who you are. I pray that each day through this week, they have a new experience of you, a new testifying moment of your glory, a new praise report, a new moment where they can identify and say, that's God working in my life. I pray that they abide in the city of peace and that they veer far away from the house of affliction. But Lord, if they find themselves in that house of affliction, God, I pray that they glorify you anyway and that they know that the these light afflictions are but a for moment, and that they, they aren't even worthy to be compared with the incomprehensible glory that awaits. Lord, I pray over them. Lord, I bless them, and I'm thankful that you keep them. In Jesus' name, amen.